Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. Lots of people here, lots of people across the way in auditorium too. So glad you've chosen to worship with us today. Pretty much every Sunday uh, this summer, we've been asking the question, what is God really like? According to the Bible, what is God really like? And each week we've been looking at one of God's attributes, uh, things like his holiness, the justice of God, the grace of God, the glory of God, the love of God, things like that. And today we're going to look at the wisdom of God. And I'm going to tell you right up front that understanding and embracing the wisdom of God in all things is the key to your hope and your peace as a follower of Jesus in this broken world. Understanding and embracing the wisdom of God in all things is the key to your hope and your peace as a follower of Jesus in this broken world. Because if you're facing a hard time that you don't quite know how to process, if you're facing a decision that you don't quite know how to make, If you're facing a complicated relationship and you don't know how to navigate it, what you need is wisdom. And what you need to see is that in all these things, God is lovingly wise in all all of his dealings with you and with the ones that you love. My mother passed away when I was 30. She was 57. She had breast cancer and she beat that. And then she had bone cancer, and she beat that. And then it manifests itself as brain cancer, which was inoperable. And uh, I tell you, I I had a hard time making sense of that because, I mean, my mom was a godly woman. And she was a great mom. And not having her around for another 20 or 30 years, not having my kids know her uh, as grandma, that was really tough. My dad passed away in 2002. He was 72, and really he was in pretty good health except for a nagging back problem, which he struggled with for most of his adult life. He finally got tired of the pain, so his back doctor scheduled him for a minor back procedure that he felt certain would give him some relief. But he had a, a bad reaction to the anesthesia. Uh, he coded. They had to intubate him. The next day, he lost all consciousness, and all his major body systems started to shut down, and he died several weeks later. And the doctor was beside himself. He's like, I've never lost a patient from a surgery like this. I mean, it didn't make sense to the doctor, and it didn't make sense to me, and it still doesn't make sense. So how do you handle things like that? How do you work through things like that? How do you deal with the overwhelming disappointment of all your unanswered prayers around things like that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's what I want to look at today because I'm convinced that the answer to those questions is rooted in understanding and embracing the wisdom of God. Now, that God is wise should be no surprise, but what does the Bible mean when it tells us that God is wise? Simply this, and this is not new, by the way. Wayne Grudem, A.W. Tozier, J.I. Packer have given us the same basic definition of the wisdom of God as I, C.F. Boyd, will give you now. Um, 
God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best outcomes and the best means to those outcomes. God always chooses the best outcomes and the best means to those outcomes. Now, for God to choose the best outcomes and the best means to those outcomes, that means there's, uh, there is something more basic about God that co- must come first, and that is that God is all-knowing. God is omniscient. God knows the beginning and the end. He knows everything in between and beyond the end of all things as we know them. God knows all things in one simple act. He doesn't have to reason his way to a decision. He never learns or forgets anything. He knows all things at once. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that the space in this room represents infinity, which you just have to go with me on this because infinity means there's no floor, there's no ceiling, then there's no walls. But this is a big space, so just imagine this is infinity. Isaiah 55, 17 says God inhabits eternity. Eternity is what I'm going for. Now, Genesis 1 tells us that out of eternity, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. Now, pretty much all modern Old Testament scholars say this whole thing about light and darkness and day and night means that God created time. So out of eternity, God creates time, this linear chronological progression of events in which we exist. And time has a beginning and it has an end. So can you see how God, who lives in eternity, how he can see all things at once? Now, God sees and knows the beginning and end of history. God knows what comes after history as we know it. And God knows what eternal life means when we step out of this linear plane, this linear dimension that we call time, and we step into eternity. Which, by the way, I have this theory that no matter where you die along this line, we all get here at the same time. So no going to heaven and waiting on everybody. That's just my thinking. Anyway, uh, so when it comes to eternity and time, there's nothing that God doesn't know. He's all-knowing. Now, that also means he knows you inside and out. There are no secrets, no secret thoughts, no secret plans, no secret desires, no secret fears that God doesn't know. Every thought that flashes in your mind, every feeling that you feel, every step you take, God knows. There's nothing about you and me that God doesn't know. He knows the good and the bad, the kind and the cruel, the loving and the lustful, the beautiful and the ugly. God knows it all, which at first might be really disturbing, but interestingly enough, not to King David. And King David writes about this in Psalm 139. Look at what he says. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me travel and when I rest at home, you know what I'm gonna say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand on a blessing on my head and such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, David isn't put off by the fact that God knows everything there is to know about him. In fact, he says, the fact that God knows me inside and out is, is, is a wonderful thing to me. He, he valued God's 
all-knowingness, so much so that he concludes this psalm, Psalm 139, by inviting God to keep on searching him, to search the deepest corners of his heart, to know everything that can be known about him and even his most anxious thoughts. So what was it about our all-knowing God that will make us feel as safe as David felt? Just this, David knew God to be more than all-knowing. He knew God to be all-wise. It wasn't just God knowing his thoughts that impressed David, but it was also that God understood his thoughts. God sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows we are but dust. He doesn't excuse our sin, but he also doesn't deal with us simply on the basis of our sin. He wisely works in your life and my life and the life of the lives of those we love to bring about our highest good. He's all-knowing and he's all-wise. So going back to our definition above, because God is all-knowing and all-wise, that means that God always chooses the best outcomes and the best means to those outcomes for this world and for your life. Now, that God is wise is affirmed over and over again in Scripture. God is called the only wise God in Romans 16, 7, uh, 16 27. Job says God is wise in heart in chapter 19, verse 4. Job says with him are wisdom and power, and he has counsel and understanding in chapter 12, verse 13. He says Yahweh is mighty in power and wisdom in chapter 36, verse 5. Isaiah says no one can measure the depths of God's wisdom, chapter 40, verse 28. And God's wisdom is specifically seen in creation. The psalmist praises God saying, Oh Lord, what a variety of things that you've made. In wisdom, you have made them all. 104.24. God's wisdom is affirmed and celebrated all through scripture. He knows and sees the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond and in his infinite wisdom, he's moving all things forward according to his all-wise predetermined plan for his glory and our good. Now, let's go back to Job. We were there last week. Jason did a great job unpacking God's attribute of omnipotence, the power of God, did a great job. He was in chapter 38 last week where Job kind of gets his comeuppance, you know, from God. But this week, we're going to be in chapter 28. And if you missed last week, or you're, maybe you're not really familiar with Job, the Jewish scriptures, specifically Job chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that Job was a righteous man, full of integrity, blameless in the sight of God. Job was a man who feared God and stayed away from evil. Job's, Job was a man who had everything, but he lost everything. His children's die, his possessions and wealth are taken from him, destroyed. He's afflicted with physical sores from head to toe, and there's no ifs and buts about it. The opening chapters of the story shows clearly that God allowed all this to happen to this good man. And Job can't figure out why God would allow it to happen. Now, he has some friends that show up to tell him why they think it happened, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. So if any of those guys ever show up in the hospital to talk to you, just, just tell them no thank you. But basically, they say, 
Job, no matter how good you think you are, you must have committed some serious sin for all this stuff to come upon you. And Job insists that 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 is not the case. And one of his rebuttals to one of his friends, he gives a very eloquent speech about the wisdom of God. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 1, chapter 28, verse 1. I am reading in the NLT. I'm going to put it up on the on the screen. And by the way, we are seriously considering uh, switching uh, Bibles to the NLT for our Sunday morning times together. I'll talk more about that if we actually decide to do it. Uh, people know where to mine silver and how to refine gold. They know where to dig iron from the earth and how to smelt copper from the rock. They know how to shine light in darkness and explore the farthest regions of the earth as they search for the dark in the dark for ore. They sink a mine shaft into the earth far from where anyone lives. They descend on ropes, swinging back and forth. Food is grown on the earth above, but down below the earth is melted as by fire. And here the rocks contain precious lapis lazuli, and the dust contains gold. Verse 9. People know how to tear apart flinty rocks and overturn the roots of mountains. They cut tunnels in rocks and uncover precious stones. They dam up the trickling streams and bring to light the hidden treasures. But do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? No, no one knows where to find it, for it's not found among the living. It's not here, says the ocean, nor is it here, says the sea. It cannot be bought with gold. It can't be purchased with silver. It's worth more than all the gold of Ophir, greater than the precious onyx stones or lapis lazuli. Wisdom is more valuable than gold and crystal. It can't be purchased with jewels mounted in fine gold. Coral and jasper are worthless in trying to get it. The price of wisdom is far above rubies. Precious peridot from Ethiopia cannot be exchanged for it. It's worth more than the purest gold. But do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all humanity. Even the sharp-eyed birds in the sky cannot discover it. Destruction and death say we've heard only rumors of where wisdom can be found. Verse 23, God alone understands the way to wisdom. He knows where it can be found. For he looks throughout the whole earth and he sees everything under the heavens. He decided how, how hard the winds should blow and how much rain should fall. He made the laws for the rain and laid out the path and the pattern for lightning. Then he saw wisdom and evaluated it. He set it in place and examined it thoroughly. And this is what God says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true understanding and to forsake evil. Uh, the fear of the Lord is true wisdom and to forsake evil is real understanding. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom and to stay away from evil is real understanding. Now, just by the way, that definition of wisdom right there in verse 28 is exactly what God said about Job in the very first chapter of this book, Job 1.1, that Job feared God and stayed away from evil. So if that definition of wisdom, if that's the definition of wisdom and that's the way that God sees Job, it means despite all the ranting and raving, Job is a wise man. Very interesting. We'll come back to that. Now, here's what I want you to see in Job's speech. Clearly, Job speaks profound truth here. He affirms that God alone is wise. So Job knows wisdom and understanding can only be found in God alone. 
But at the same time, Job can't make sense of all the tragedy that God has allowed to come into his life and to the life of his family. He believes he doesn't deserve all these terrible things that have wrecked his life, so he questions God's wisdom. Job affirms God's wisdom, but at the same time, he questions God's wisdom. He affirms God's wisdom, but he thinks and speaks as if he's wiser than God because he can't make sense of what's happened to him. And pretty much the whole book is about Job ranting and raving about how he doesn't deserve what's happened to him. In fact, at one point, Job actually challenges God by saying, take me to court and I'll prove you wrong in a court of law. Job affirms God's wisdom, but, it, but because of what he suffers, he questions God's wisdom. Now, would you agree with me that that's our problem as well? Church, is God wiser than you? Say yes. Does God know more than you? Yes. Does God see the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond? Yes. But isn't it true that we're just like Job? We affirm God's wisdom, but in moments of pain and loss and suffering, most of us also question God's wisdom and what he's allowed to come into our lives. Like when my mom and dad died, it, it, it didn't make any sense. The disappointment and the pain was overwhelming, and I found myself telling God how he could have, should have done things better, according to my wisdom. Or let's say when you see your children going through a really, really hard time and you see their pain and the sadness over something that they hoped would happen but that something didn't happen, how do you pray for them? Do you pray uh, for them by telling God what he should be doing for your child that, that he's not doing as if God needs to be informed about what's best for your child? Or do you pray for God to use what he's allowed to come into your child's life to make him or to make her stronger in their faith? I really believe that, whether we realize it or not, a whole lot of our praying is us questioning God's wisdom, telling him what he really needs to be doing, what he needs to be fixing, as if he needs to be informed. One more time, a lot of our prayers are our way of saying, God, let me tell you, what you should do in this situation. Let me tell you how to run your universe, which is our Job-like way of saying, God, I really am wiser than you. You need to listen to me. You follow me here? The same thing is true whether the subject of our prayers is our children or our physical well-being or a loved one's health or a relationship gone south or a job loss or a college we didn't get into or the death of someone that we love. What, what I'm trying to say here is that there, there's an awful lot of us, a lot of people who don't really trust God's wisdom. And what they're really doing is saying that they know better than God how life ought to go. And that's why you're so anxious. That's why you're so worried. That's why you're praying so frantically and furiously. That's why you're telling God what to do. You're not trusting in his wisdom. You're trying to use God to get him to do the things you think you need to happen according to your wisdom. But again, God sees and knows the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond in your life and in the life of those that you love. He 
always, always wisely chooses the best outcomes and the best ways to accomplish those outcomes for his highest glory and your highest good. But God's ways being higher than our ways don't always make sense to us, don't always look like, feel like they're for our highest good. I've been reading a book by a seminary professor named John Golden Gay, who is to the Old Testament what N.T. Wright is to the New Testament, if that means anything to you, some of you it does. But the book is entitled Walk On, Life, Loss, Trust, and Other Realities. And the back story of the book is about how John was married to Anne for 43 years and how Anne contracted MS and, and all of the difficult years of her slow decline and eventually her death, that's the back story. But really the book is a series of, um, for the lack of a better word, devotionals, but that's, it's they're like wisdom devotionals, thoughts about different topics and scriptures and how those scriptures help John walk on through the trial and tragedy of, of Anne's illness. And chapter three is entitled Calamity. And its scriptural focus is a walkthrough of the book of Job. And I'm telling you, it's incredibly insightful, full of godly wisdom. The amazing thing about Job is that despite all his ranting and raving about how unfair God has been, and despite the fact that God has put Job in his place, chapter 38, that Jason took us through last week, in chapter 42, verse 7, we actually hear God say Job has spoken truth. 42.7, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So according to God, ranting and raving Job is wiser than his rule-oriented religious friends. Now that seems strange to me. Here's what Golden Gay says. Now, this is, this is a long quote, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, but I'm going to read it in a way that it hopefully comes across like I'm preaching it, but everything I'm about to say for the next couple of minutes comes from Golden Gay, and I'm going to pull out and make some observations to try to make what he says more clear. He says, there is a scheme for understanding the way we grow as human beings that moves through, in other words, God takes us through these things, orientation, disorientation, and renewed orientation. Not once and for all, but on an ongoing basis. Now, orientation means that you know how life works, you know who God is, you know who you are, you know how you and life and God relate. Disorientation is what takes place when this knowledge gets shattered for some reason. Your marriage breaks up, you lose a child, you lose a job, you study theology and discover questions you didn't know existed. So in other words, what you knew to be true about God, your original orientation, doesn't fit with your current experience of God. Disorientation. Then renewed orientation involves a new understanding that does justice both to your original understanding and to what shattered it. The story of Job takes him through that three-stage process and the argument between him and his friends is about how you cope 
with disorientation. Now, the friends cope with it by denying it, as people often do when they refuse to acknowledge the reality of loss and grief. The friends insist on fitting what has happened to Job within the framework of what they thought they already knew about how God relates to us and how God runs his world. In that framework, calamity is simple. It's completely understandable. The emphasis of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar repeated until it annoys us as much as it annoys Job and God (laughs) is that people who live in right relationship with God find blessing, people who don't experience trouble. So when calamity comes, yeah, we have to ask ourselves if it might be because of chastisement for our wrongdoing or the nuance brought by the angry young man Elihu is that calamity is designed to bring us to repentance for wrongdoing to draw us back to God, to make us grow in our relationship with God. That's true. In other words, God's world runs on this simple principle. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. So if some tragedy comes into your life, find the sin, repent of the sin, get back in good graces with God. And that's not completely wrong, but it's just not completely right. He says... Golden Gate says, indeed, Job's own story illustrates how in the end, the person who lives in right relation to God does find blessing. And the person who experiences calamity is brought to repentance and led on his relationship with God by his experience. And so by the end of Job, but by the end, Job finds a new orientation that does justice to the old. The point of the argument between Job and his friends is to demonstrate that the old orientation, do good, get good, do bad, get bad, does not fit with Job's current experience. The friends, uh, or at least Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, refuse to see this. Rather than revise their theology, they rewrite Job's life. In contrast, the reason why God commends Job, 42.7, is that Job insists on facing the facts rather than hiding from them. Job curses and argues and confronts and challenges and insists and scorns all in the cause of a resolute requirement that the facts have to be faced and not evaded. And the fact is he has lived right by God. What's happened to him doesn't fit that. And he would like to know how he's supposed to fit that into his universe. So, yeah, there are a number of ways to of understanding calamity when it comes. It may be chastisement for wrongdoing. It might be designed to cause us to grow in our relationship with God. Or it may be designed to vindicate our relationship with God, which is seen in the opening and closing scenes of the story. Now, here's the point. The story of Job suggests that sometimes there may be explanations for calamity that we do not know, but we have to live with God without knowing them. The story of Job suggests that sometimes there may be explanations for calamity that we do not know, but we have to live with God without knowing them. Isn't that good? I mean, so how do you live with God when there's no satisfactory explanations for tragedy, for a tragedy that you are going through or someone you love is going through? Well, you need wisdom. Okay, so how do I get wisdom? Where does wisdom come from? <clears throat> Here, this is a basic part of the foundation. First, you have to accept the fact that God, the scriptures, and life in this broken world is complex. Not everything is black and white, cut and dry. 
There's not a rule for everything that applies in every single situation. Biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, godly truth is always complex. Error and heresy and foolishness are always too simple. For example, take the doctrine of the Trinity, which we're going to look at in two weeks. Some religions say there's one God that exists in one person. That's pretty simple. Other religions, polytheistic religions, say there are multiple gods, many gods. Okay, that's pretty simple. So whether you believe in one God in one person or many gods in one person, it's, 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 it's all pretty simple. Christianity says there's one God and this one God exists in three persons. Now that's complex. It's the most complex view of God that there is. But according to the Bible, it's the right one. And that's true about everything else. Let me show you what I mean. The skeptic, the relativist, tends to say life is irrational. We're, cho- we're here by accident, so live any way that you want. The moralist, the religious person, says if you do everything just right, your life will go right. That's Job's friends. Both of those are foolish. Why? Because they're too simple. To say you can live any way you want, you decide, it's up to you, means that you determine what's right and wrong for you. It's to say that there are no moral laws that govern the universe, and that's not true. It's too simple. It's foolish. On the other hand, to say if you do everything right according to the rules, everything will go good for you. That's too simple as well. Uh, If you read the book of Proverbs, the hinge pen of wisdom literature in the Bible. It's shocking how, every, how complex everything is. Uh, for example, early in the book of Proverbs, like in chapters 10, 11, 12, it says something like this. Let's take the relationship between work and wealth. Proverbs says if you work hard, you'll make money. If you work hard, you'll be wealthy. If you work hard, you'll have a roof over your head. If you work hard, you won't be poor. It says things like that in several ways. But then a little bit later on in the book of Proverbs, it says something like, A poor person's farm produces an abundant crop, but injustice sweeps it all away. Now, you read those two things and you say, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. If you work hard, you're supposed to get wealth, be wealthy, but you see that you could work hard and have an abundant, have abundant wealth and and lose it all. So that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make sense because we're looking at it in a simplistic way in a simplistic way. We say that because we don't understand biblical wisdom. When you read the book of Proverbs, we tend to look for cold hard facts and commands and promises, but many Proverbs are not commands or promises or even statements of fact. They're statements of how life usually works. So do you see what I mean by complexity? In general, it is true that if you work hard, you do well. In general, it is true that if you work hard, you'll have a roof over your head. But on the other hand, The book of Proverbs also says that sometimes you can work hard and lose everything. So if you build your life on the idea that life is completely random, so it doesn't doesn't matter whether you work hard or not, that's foolishness. On the other hand, if you believe that if you work hard, uh, that things will always go well for you, that's foolish too, because in this fallen, broken world, life is more complex than that. And you'll understand why in a second. How about this one? How about parenting? On the one hand, Proverbs says if you raise your child right, that child will turn out right. That's Proverbs 22.6. That's the CBV, Charlie Boyd version. 
But then there are over 15 Proverbs where a father is calling his child to obey his teaching, warning his child that of all the troubles that will come into his life if he doesn't follow the father's teaching and walk in God's ways of wisdom. So why would a father need to warn a child from turning away from the faith if Proverbs 2.22.6 is an ironclad guarantee that a child raised right will turn out right? Why? Because both things are true. In general, if you raise your child right, he or she will live out what you taught him. But on the other hand, it's possible to do a lot for your child and to love your child, and your child still can grow up and turn away from the faith you raised him to believe. Because that's life. That's life in this broken world. And it's complex. And there are so many other things like that. How about prayer? The Bible says God answers prayer. But we also know that God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we pray them. So what do you do with that? Well, sadly, a lot of people chuck their faith and walk away from God because God didn't give them what they prayed for. Over my almost 40 years in ministry, I've heard it many times. I've heard people say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and God didn't answer my prayer. So what use is God? As if God's like a genie. How about healing? God does heal people. He still heals people today, but he doesn't always heal. And it's not simply because you don't have enough faith. It's not your fault when God doesn't heal. That's too simplistic. That's the kind of things Job's friends would say. They would have blamed him. Job, it's simple. You just don't have enough faith. I know you're sitting here and you're scraping all these sores, you know, with these pot shirts and, and, and you're in miserable pain. But if you had faith, God would heal you. That's what a young preacher told my mom in her final stay in the hospital. If you just had faith, God would heal you. Now, do you think that helped her or did it hurt her? That's, that, that kind of thinking is just too simple. God has a plan for your life and the lives of the people you love that's bigger than what you want and what you tell God you think he should do when it comes to healing. His sovereign will governs everyone's individual life. And his sovereign wisdom governs his decision of who will be healed and who will not be healed in this life. Because God sees and knows the beginning and the end of everything and everything in between and beyond in your life and in the lives of all the people that you love, that you pray for. He doesn't need to be informed about how to handle someone's life. Certainly not by you or by me. Should we pray for healing? Absolutely. Should we expect God to heal? Yes, absolutely. But if our all-wise, infinitely wise God has chosen sickness and what we call untimely death, then as hard as that is to bear, we learn to rest in his loving wisdom. We have to learn to rest in his wisdom. Let me recap this way. Knowledge is important. We need accurate knowledge. But thinking that everything can be solved or determined by facts alone, too simple. Rules are important. Black and white, cut and dry, do this, don't do that rules are very important because we need rules. 
or our lives and our society falls apart. But sometimes by themselves, rules are not enough because there are no rules that tell you who to marry or what job to take or where you should live or what doctor to go to or what course of treatment that you, t- t- you take. The, bi- the rules in the Bible do not cover every circumstance and every contingency. So what we need is wisdom and wisdom is complex. Wisdom is about how do you make sense of and apply the facts in a specific situation, especially when the facts seem to contradict each other, especially when you find yourself in situations where there are no specific rules to follow. You follow me here. We need accurate facts and information. We need rules that tell us right and wrong, but more than anything else, we need wisdom because only wisdom can help you navigate the complexities of life. Only wisdom can help walk you through Job-like tragedy and disappointment with your faith still intact. So first of all, you have to accept the fact that God and the scriptures and life in this broken world is complex. You cannot figure everything out. And second, you, you have to know that you can only find wisdom in God. Job 28, 13 tells us that wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living. Then down in verse 21, we're told it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It says down in verse 23 that God alone understands the way to wisdom. He alone knows where it can be found, meaning that only God knows everything about the human heart. Only God knows everything about the times and seasons of our lives. Only God knows everything about the complexities of every part of our life. Only God knows everything about how life works. Only God always knows the right path to take, the right choice to make, and the right thing to do. Here's why. Verse 24, God looks through the whole earth and he sees everything under the heavens. That's why he is the only wise God. That's why he always knows exactly what should be done and why everything is happening because he sees the whole thing at once. He sees the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond. I know I sound like a broken record, but I hope this is sinking in. You see, God created time and space and this world and us and creation with intelligent design. God created all things with order and pattern and purpose, and it was all good. Creation was all good, but, big but here, but there was a fall because we turned away from God. There are all kinds of things in the world today that God didn't originally put here. Things like disease and suffering and death and violence and oppression and injustice, these things were not a part of God's original design. So you've got a very good creation with a a real order to it, but it's a broken order. It's a broken creation. But, another big but here, on top of that, there's redemption. The Bible tells us that God has not left us to ourselves. He called Abraham and he created a people for himself. He sent his son and then his spirit and he created a church. And he's working out his will in and through all things, even through bad things that are happening. He's moving his redemptive purposes forward to the time when there is no time, when time will be no more. So the creation is good, but because of the fall, it's broken. 
And all our pain and suffering and disease and death are a part of that broken creation. But the good news is God is working even through the brokenness, even through disease and suffering and death to eventually bring about our highest good in and through his good plan of salvation. Good creation, broken creation at the same time. You see how, no wonder things are so complicated. There are good things which are also broken things. And in some cases, God is working through both broken things and sometimes he uses bad things to bring about good. And you know that's true. You see it in the Bible and you've seen it in your life. And to navigate life with God in this broken world, we need the wisdom that comes from above, as James says, which is where we're going in the fall when we finish up this series. We need wisdom that comes from above, that comes from God. We need to trust God's wisdom. And ironically, that means being convinced that God is wiser than you and resting in that conviction. So that's the third thing. You grow wise by resting in God's wisdom. You grow wise by resting in God's wisdom. The secret is found in verse 28. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom and to forsake evil is real understanding. At least three times in the Bible, in Psalms, Proverbs, and right here, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the way to get wisdom. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. So you wanna know how to handle trouble? You wanna be able to navigate what's going on in this ever-changing world? You wanna be able to rest in what you don't understand? You need wisdom. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. So what does that mean? <laughs> well, it's not simple. It's complicated. It's a very complicated command because when you and I look at the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it looks to us like it's saying you need to be scared of God. You need to be afraid of God. And, and, and that's just not true. Psalm 130, verse four, David says, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. <laughs> I read that and I'm like, what? Like, Lord, the more you forgive me, the more afraid I am of you? That doesn't make any sense. That's because we think of fears being, being scared. But obviously that's not what it means. So what does it mean? The fear of God is having a reverential awe of God and all that he is. It's having a reverential fear of God and all that he is. Okay, so what's that mean? Glad you ask. Having a reverential awe of God means that in all things, that I think and speak and act and pray in a way that reflects the deep conviction that God is holy and I am not, that God is sovereign and I am not, that God is ever faithful and I am not, that God is always gracious and I am not, that God is glorious and all powerful and I am not, that God is perfectly just in all his judgments, I am not, that God is infinitely loving and good, I am not, and God is all-knowing and all-wise and I am not. Therefore, the conviction is because God is all these things to me, to me, 
These attributes of God are not some abstract theological doctrinal truths about God. No, because God is all those things to me. I will trust in him. I will rest in him. I will learn to be still and know that he is God. Especially when I don't understand what he's up to. You see it? Having a reverential awe of God is taking all the attributes of God that we've studied this summer and holding on to each one of them so tightly that nothing, absolutely nothing can shake our faith in God. Absolutely nothing can loosen our grip on God. Author and Bible teacher Graham Goldsworthy put it this way. He says, the fear of God is a truly reverent awe of the one whose infinite greatness and wisdom and care reach far beyond anything we can comprehend. I was, uh, this past week I was talking uh, about the message with uh, J.W. Thompson. And uh, Jim says he thinks of wisdom this way. The wisdom of God is the mortar between the bricks of all the other attributes of God that holds them together. The wisdom of God connects and cements all the other attributes to God to each other and makes them personal. For example, God's wisdom governs the use of his power, governs the use of his power to heal, to answer prayer, to move mountains and slay giants if he so chooses, but how he uses his power is governed by his wisdom. God's wisdom defines God's truth as it is found in scripture and in creation. God's wisdom has manifested itself in his love and care for us. God's wisdom abounds in his grace and faithfulness towards us. God's wisdom undergirds his justice and his judgments. All the attributes of God that we looked at this summer are made personal to us through the exercise of God's wisdom in all things. And understanding that, embracing that, Resting in that is your hope and your peace. A.W. Tozier writes, it's as if God were saying, what I am is all that need matter to you, for there lie your hope and peace. I will do what I will do, and it will come to light at last, but how I do it is my secret. Trust me and do not be afraid. It's hard though, it's hard. Just like you, I really struggled with losing both my parents, especially in the way they ended up dying. But the only hope and peace I have is that God's plan for my mom and dad really was better than my plan for my parents. I truly believe that even though I don't understand his plan. I really struggled as I watched two of most, my most beloved mentors Howard Hendricks and Haddon Robinson, two of the greatest Bible teachers I've ever heard, men who shaped the lives and ministries of thousands of their students. I struggled as I watched them grow old and lose their mental abilities. And I was like, God, why? Like, is this how you treat men who faithfully loved you and followed you? Men who you've used mightily in, in the work of the gospel? I struggle with that. But the only hope and peace I found in terrible tragedies like that is holding on to the fact that somehow God in his wisdom 
His plan for men and women like that's better than my plan for them. I don't see the end and the, uh, the beginning and the end and everything in between and beyond. I don't see it. His plan's better than my plan. I just really struggle with what's going on in our country right now. I can't figure it out. It makes no sense to me. But the only hope and peace I have is believing that whatever God's plan is and whatever he's allowing to happen right now is a better plan than my plan for the future of the country. You see, the testimony of our faith is that no matter how things look in this fallen, broken world, we hold tightly to the fact that all of God's actions and inactions are undertaken in perfect, loving, sovereign, holy wisdom. And I believe that. I rest in that. And in moments of confusion and doubt and disappointment, in moments when my mind races to make sense of what makes no sense, I find myself saying to myself, Charlie, be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that God is God. I, I know it's hard. It is hard. I know it's hard. But we have something that Job didn't have. We have an advantage that Job didn't have. You know what it is? When Jesus was on the cross, do you remember that one of the things that they taunted him with, they said, come down. You remember? If you really are the son of God, if you really are the Messiah, show us. Come down off that cross. But he didn't come down. He stayed there. And he died for our sins. You know why? Tim Keller says he was being still. He was trusting his heavenly father. He was submitting to God's will. In the garden, he said, thy will be done. If I would rather accomplish your plan of salvation some other way, but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, here's how Keller puts it. You will never be still under suffering for God's sake until you see God in Jesus Christ being still under suffering for your sake. You'll never be still under suffering for God's sake until you see God in Jesus Christ being still under suffering for your sake. Jesus on the cross was still for your sake. How else could he hang there and say in the stillness, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He stayed put because of his love for you. He stayed put because God's grace could be poured out on you. We need to take that to heart. It's just another way of talking about what we talked about today. It's another way of beholding him so that when trouble comes, you're able to be still under suffering for his sake. After all your praying and asking, you also say, Lord, but not my will, but your will be done. You know a thing that really bothers me? A whole lot of these prayer of faith for healing people say that if you pray and say at the end of a prayer for healing, uh, but not my will, but thy will, you know what they say about that? They say that's a cop-out. Like that's not faith that God will heal. And I'm like, Seriously? If I pray like Jesus, that's a cop-out? 
really? I can't say out loud what I think about that. <laughs> Lord, not my will, but your will. Taking a posture like that and learning to be still and rest in God's perfect, all-loving wisdom will bring you a peace and a hope that passes all understanding. It'll bring you a peace and hope as you've never experienced it. When my dad died, I was crushed, and I kept saying, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I trust you. Lord, I trust you. And I went to the beach in Melbourne. No one else was there. It's late in the day, and I went and I sat on the beach just to be still. I stared out at the ocean. I listened to the pounding of the waves on shore. And I tell you, I can't even describe it. I experienced the peace of God unlike anything I had ever experienced before or anything since. The wave of confusion and hurt that had been pounding in my head became still and calm, like a, just like a sea of glass. And in the hurt and the sadness of what I had lost, I could say, it is well with my soul. Don't like what happened. I would have chosen differently, but it's well with my soul. The fear of the Lord, the reverential awe of God, especially as you look at Jesus, will make you truly wise. Pray with me. Father, forgive us when we think and act and pray like our wisdom is better than your wisdom. Thank you for understanding that when we do pray that way, you know, you know who we are inside and out. You sympathize with our weaknesses. And just like the ranting and raving of Job didn't put you off and make you turn aside from Job, even when we question your wisdom, even when we struggle with it, even when we get mad at you and rant and rave ourselves, you don't turn away from us. Thank you for these words of wisdom from the book of Job. May we take them and through the cross, may we become wise in your wisdom as we navigate life in this broken world. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.